G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Let me ask you a little question. Uh, do you have a noodle on the future? Would you say you noodle on the future? Uh, when you noodle on things in your noggin, uh, would you say that you noodle on uh, things in the future? Because uh, I know I do. If you're anything like me, you find yourself doing a lot of noodling. And uh, the things you find yourself noodling on, I hazard a guess, are probably things in the future. Because there's not, not much point noodling on things in the past. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, I, don't know why, I don't know how we got started on this whole noodling thing. I, honestly, I turned on the microphone and I was like, I'm going to talk about Catherine Ball. And then now we're, now we're up Noodle Creek without a paddle, so to speak. Do you think I'm going to turn the microphone off and do a second take? Not on my life. Not on my life. I want to get out of here and do more noodling on the future. Don't want to be doing second takes uh, just so we can do less noodling. The world needs more noodling, not less. That's my motto. I'm going to write a book about that. Anyway, in the meantime, you should enjoy this conversation with Catherine Ball because she noodles a hell of a lot about a lot of things and mostly in the future. You know why? Because she's a futurist and that's what futurists do. They noodle on things that haven't happened yet. And if you want to noodle on things, <laughs> I'm not going to say noodle anymore. If you want to noodle on things, uh, there you go. But that's this sentence is not included in that uh, in that promise. After this sentence, I'm not going to say noodle anymore. If you want to noodle on things, okay, that's the last noodle. Uh, about the future, then this is the podcast episode for you. Full stop. New chapter of this introduction. Uh, Catherine Ball is a futurist, a scientific futurist, and you'll explain. She 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 explains to you in this conversation why she makes that distinction. Uh, who, uh, I mean, thinks heavily about what the next you know half century is going to look like or more. And this is a fascinating conversation. She's got a, she's got a book called Converge, and its subtitle, uh, which is appropriately long, as all subtitles need to be now, is A Futurist's Insights into the Potential of Our World as Technology and Humanity Collide. Uh, Catherine, when we talk about all kinds of things in this chat, artificial intelligence, uh, the singularity, uh, the future of food and uh, clean meat and you know lab-grown meat, uh, aging and longevity, and whether aging is a disease that will be cured, basically all the stuff that you want to like you want to explore and think about where future of privacy and data, all this stuff. We go everywhere in this conversation. Uh, so without any further ado, I hope you enjoy uh, this chat with the one and only scientific futurist, Dr. Catherine Ball, as she noodles. Last night was a roast chicken... Um, in the air fryer, we love our air fryer. Oh. My husband likes to do chicken and rubs in the air fryer. Mm. So he's trying all the different spices and things with cheap chicken cuts. So we, we're going through the cheap chicken meat phase of our life. I, <laughs> I bought an air fryer during the pandemic and then just threw it out, not never having used it about a year <gasps> later. No. I oh, know. Is that bad? We should have given it to a mate who's got children, mate. I've That's got, what you should I've have got, done. I've got two five-year-olds. I don't have time for an air fryer. I, can't, I don't have time to learn anything new. Oh, it's I, just so good. Is it? Oh, my God. Or do you, were I can't you, believe it. Were you, big, were you big fried food fans to begin with? Well, no, because you don't do fried food in it. So, no. for example, one of the things that we love is chicken skewers. Right. So rather than get out on a smoky barbecue grill or smoke the kitchen out or, you know, put it in a frying pan with oil, you just yeah. literally chuck them in the air fryer. It's actually less oil. Right. It's a, yeah. 
I guess I kind of got hoodwinked by like online articles and reviews and recipes that would say you no longer have to spend hours over the stove like deep frying your chips in in like oh, vats no. of oil. Now you can use an air fryer. And I'd be like, but I have never made French fries in my entire life. So the first thing I made for my husband, I went to a posh butchery place and bought one of those really nice rack of lambs because he really mm. likes lamb, but I don't eat lamb. Oh, I love and lamb. And I used to eat lamb, so I understand and appreciate when you like a good piece of lamb. And I was like, let's try, because it keeps everything really juicy. So the first thing we had in there was this really expensive $40 little rack of lamb in the air fryer. And it was amazing. It was done in so quick a time. It did not stink out the whole kitchen. And it's probably a lot more energy efficient than using the whole oven for one tiny little rack of lamb. And it wasn't overcooked? Was it rare inside? No, perfect. Really? I gotta yeah. get myself another air fryer. I think you might need to get another air fryer, Josh. It's basically just a hot oven, right? It's basically a small version of an oven that's just a lot more energy efficient. Can you imagine if everyone just used an air fryer instead of using the whole oven, the amount of electricity would be saved? It's a good point. Also, yeah. No, that's right. I was actually talking to Saul Griffith on this show who believes oh, yeah. we should, you know, electrify everything mm-hmm. uh, and just get rid of gas and all that. He, I'm, yeah. he, I'm a convert. He's very persuasive. Oh, look, he's a genius. He had a MacArthur Genius Grant, didn't he, or something like that? I think so. We I've only got a lot of time geniuses. for Saul. I've we got a lot geniuses. of time for him. The thing that I find with him, though, is when he dis- just disagrees with things, he goes, well, that's fundamentally against the law of physics. I'm sort of like, <laughs> yeah, but can we look at it a slightly different way? No. He's like, no, it's fundamentally wrong. No, I'm like, yes. Newton can we just said look it was at it a different way? Hundreds of years ago. <laughs> There's no way it's going to work. Uh, so th- let's talk about you. So a futurist, We, you and I have spoken on ABC Radio Sydney, but that's a rather fast uh, format. Here we have a bit more time to luxuriate in ourselves. What wh- What is a futurist exactly? Like, what do you see your work as being? I suppose for me, I'm trying to open everybody's eyes to the potential of some of the things that we have in our lives that we're not using, like you not using your air fryer to its yeah. full potential, right. Josh. Right. Thank you. Um, um, effectively, it's be the futurism. Of this interview, isn't it? I'm just never going to be able to shed it. My no. humiliation over my air fryer know. humiliation. You've really gone down in my estimation. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. It's forgivable. You know what it's like um, having little kids. Like, either I bet there's something. What's the thing that you have bought, Catherine, that you never ended up using because you were too busy at being a parent? I bet there's oh. something. Go on. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to think. Drop yourself in. There's something. What, in terms of kids' paraphernalia or just in general? Just in general. I bet there's something that you've bought since your children were born there where you're like, I'm going to learn to do this thing. This is going to be, this is going to revolutionize my cooking or my recreation or my exercise or my children's. Oh, oh I have. Or oh, what God, my children this is a big like admission. to use. Yeah, what is it? I bought a Peloton. Of course you did. Of course I you bought a Peloton. $2,000. Yes. And it's still sitting there. Because I broke my foot. I broke my foot a year ago, so you I couldn't do walking. You don't have to give, it, give me excuses, Catherine. That's all right. And I'm not judging. No, no, because I couldn't walk, but space. I need to exercise. So I bought the Peloton mm. and I've used it once. Right. right. And that was just to see how it worked. Mm. I've not even done a class. And that was $2,000. So I'm feeling pretty smug at the moment because my air fryer was less than $100 <laughs> and your Peloton was $2,000. I can uh, sell my Peloton for $2,000, though. You've thrown your yeah. air fryer away. <laughs> True. Yeah, but will you? I mean, will you? You're I'm not actually going gonna to get on the Peloton. That was one of the, really? the things. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to do it. You send me a text when you get on the Peloton. And I then, will have proof. And then I will I no even, longer judge you. The worst you. thing, hmm. we talk about buying into a brand. I even bought Peloton exercise clothes. Yep. So yeah. convinced was I how they that get I you. was going to become a Pelotonian. It's not a device. It's a way of life, Catherine. 
Well, apparently so, and I've never really subscribed to no. exercise. Every single gym membership has ever, ever I've ever had has failed. But I signed I feel... up to that Chris Hemsworth one. I've never <laughs> done it. <laughs> I feel that way about, I mean, this whole, like you just think that you're going to become a different person because you buy a device type thing, this whole way of life type aspect of, of uh, materialism, I think applies to the air fryer. It applies to people's relationship to their Nutribullet uh, blenders. Yes. And the uh, Thermomix. The Thermomix, exactly. Mm. Like there are certain devices that are not just devices. They are totems of allegiance to a particular tribe. And I just never get around to joining the tribe. That's my problem. I get the air fryer and then I'm like, oh, I don't have to join this community of people who are excited about air fryers. When you see the air fry guy makes me laugh because he makes the most disgusting things on that's Instagram. Right. And I'm yeah. like, that's gross. Yeah, that's but right. That's you can deep fry a turkey or something. Yeah. I'm like, I've never deep fried it. It's like, you know, you'll mm. no longer spend whole afternoons like struggling with your, with a vat of oil while you're deep frying your turkeys. I'm like, that has never been a problem never for happened. me. Never happened. You can roast chickens in it, you know. Well, I can roast chicken. I roast chickens perfectly adequately in my oven. I know, but your oven's massive. What's wrong with that? But it's huge, right? So you're using all that, that electricity huge. just for a little chicken. I don't know chicken. how big your... No, my chicken... No, I mean... How no. big's your chicken, no, Josh? I'm getting a big bloody chicken. And <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got a wee little Get a oven. massive chicken. I don't, it's I've a got turkey. A, I, <laughs> no, I'm not wasting a huge amount of uh, energy when I roast a chicken. My chicken's taking up maybe um, maybe one-sixth of the volume of my, my oven. One-fifth. So four-fifths or five-sixths aren't being used well what are you are you jamming your chicken inside this air fryer so that there's you not a skerrick of, yeah, of volume you buy, left you can buy those boned chickens have you got you, a toilet already plunger and, and you're just, just standing above there. the chicken you're trying to wedge the chicken in from above how do you even get it out if it's that perfectly oh yes it does fit okay the chicken fits. Anyway, um, look, I so, you know, I have you were talking about. This is great. We've gone from futurism back to shoving chickens in air fryer. I love it already. <laughs> it's very um, good. <laughs> um, no, carry but, on about your, about, yes, uh, about futurism. Yeah, well, I think all of us are futurists to a certain extent because we always take bets on how we think things are going to go. And the problem is in, in the corporate world and in the academic world, people like to use labels. They like to name things to try and explain things. So a lot, a lot of the time over the last 10 years when people have asked me what I do, and I've gone straight into the deep geek of it. I've lost them. I've just lost them on it completely. So I had to find a new way of explaining some of the ways I was trying to accelerate new technologies, trying to test new business models, trying to find new ways these things were going to work in the real world. And I just came up with this idea, well, it is like global foresight and it is futurism. We are literally taking new technologies and testing them to see how they could go and how that can move into the future through business models and applications. And so futurism became the thing. And then I was like, well, everyone calls themselves a futurist these days. So how do I differentiate myself from the pack? And I suppose that's where I'm a scientific futurist because my background is science. And so I live by the tenets of science um, when I look at some of the things that I'm trying to extrapolate and model and predict. And as you say, we're all futurists because we all wonder about the future. Uh, we're also all living in the future already because mm -hmm. if you'd asked us 20 years ago what the world was going to be like in 2023, we would have made our predictions and now we're here. How are we doing? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, if we think about 30 years ago in the 90s, you know, 1998 or 1999 when the Matrix films came out, you know, mm. and this, this whole futuristic ideal around how we'd be dressing and the phones we'd be using and... I was actually reviewing back through old Bond films the other day to look oh, at yeah. some of the futurism in the Bond movies. Mm. 
And it's funny how they all managed to sort out the automatic door, but in the Bond films in the 60s and early 70s, they still had lots of light switches. They still hadn't figured out the light switch. <laughs> um, and so I think we're actually, we're doing okay. One of the things that really chills me to the core is that, you know, in terms of some of our client science modeling and the climate emergency, how great some people were at modeling this in the 70s and 80s and just continued doing exactly what they were doing anyway mm. um, and didn't tell anyone about it. Um, and I just feel like sometimes as the general public, we're always on the last foot with some of this. And it's really unfortunate. And that's what I kind of rail against and disagree with. I feel like we should be hearing things as they come out new. But no, unfortunately, as an environmental scientist by training, Josh, it's quite a quite a dark space to have to work in because all we see is biodiversity loss, climate change. You know, no matter what kind of new Earth observation uh, technologies come out, it's basically still telling us the same stories that we know, which mm. is, you know, we've, we've got some real issues that we have to deal with. And just looking at it through a different kind of satellite is not going to change what's actually really happening. Um, uh, one it, of the yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that we didn't. Uh, I'm not sure it's, a, it's necessarily a fair criticism that scientists don't articulate or don't try to articulate to the public what they're finding. But I just think we don't do a very good job at understanding it and propagating it and amplifying it, especially in the media as well. I mean, the the Kyoto Protocol on climate change was in 1992, I remember. which I have a lot of friends who weren't born in 1992. And was Kyoto ninety or ninety two? Whenever know the that Rio was, you, I'll trust 92. you. I'll trust you. But it was thereabouts, right? And I mean, I it was in the nineties. I yeah. read the other in the early nineties. I read the other day that half of all the carbon in the atmosphere, half of all the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, have been emitted since that convention, which we mm. all convened to say this is an emergency and we have to do something about it. So there's a problem with democracy and like implementing big changes that involve lots of moving parts and conflicting interests that transcends, I think, any ignorance on the public's part about the scale of the problem. Well, the people who I was referring to with regard to climate modelling was actually the oil and gas industry, Josh. Right, I see. I wasn't I see. referring yes, to right, scientists. Okay. Yeah, the manufacturing of dissent. Of well, the, the main bogus. one that's just come out is the ExxonMobil modelling, isn't it? That's just been in the news. What's that? They showed that they, they basically predicted climate change and their models were eerily accurate. And don't forget who came up with the term um, carbon footprint. What was it? Who came up with the term carbon footprint? You know how we look at our own carbon footprint and we worry about our carbon footprint? You yeah. know who came up with that expression? No. BP. Really? Because if it pushes back on us, then it's not on them. Right, I'm going to end up on a, I'm going to end up on a murder list here, aren't I, if I keep talking? No, I mean, I get... Um, yeah, well, maybe. Well, um... Kyoto yeah. Protocol was adopted on the 11th of December 1997, but owing to a complex, and this is the thing, right, politics, owing to a complex ratification process, it entered into force on the 16th of February 2005. So it was in 97? 97 was when it was convention? adopted, 2005 was when it was ratified. Huh. So, you know, we it's like they've just had these things in the press about the ozone layer recovering. But one of the things that people are missing about all of that is they reckon it'll be sorted in about 40 years. Yeah, I saw that. So they're like, they're like, yeah, well, it's fixing itself. Oh, I see. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Here we go. The Kyoto Protocol was an international treaty which extended the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. What was that? That was Rio. That was Rio. Yeah. Okay, so I'm thinking of Rio in 92. Yes, Kyoto yeah. in 97. Uh, anyway, the, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it, about carbon footprint putting the burden of responsibility back on individuals and off, uh, you know, the companies that are causing the problem. I've always – how do you feel – look, 
why don't we park climate for a second? Because otherwise, yeah. we'll spend an hour talking about climate. And oh I no, know I know, and I don't want to waste the time talking about. Yeah. Uh, not that it's a waste of time. I feel like everyone's hearing it from the right people now. We've That's got the right, right. people and talking it, about it, and yeah. it's not my. Exactly, and it's not it's not particular. specifically your you know your bailiwick um, in comparison to all the other things that you have thought closely about, which are mm. more uniquely your own. Um, why don't we talk about artificial intelligence and where computing is? Also, just incidentally, on what people in the past didn't get right about today, <laughs> I've just finished reading two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey, the Arthur, Arthur C. Oh. Clarke book, which I'd never read, um, which he wrote. Mm -hmm sort of as he was trying to figure out what the screenplay was going to be and concurrently mm -hmm. with the screenplay that he was collaborating with Kubrick on. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously you can't see the things that he's getting wrong, but the fact that, you know, there are still gigantic computers with big buttons on them yeah. and that the way that humans are interfacing with IT is not through screens and, you know, holographic displays and, you know, touch things is interesting that they, you know, this is a universe in which we're going to Saturn where we've got manned missions to Saturn and Jupiter, but we haven't yet invented the iPad. It's the very first example of FaceTime, the movie. That's true. He the movie, he FaceTimes his daughter, doesn't he, from space? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was I love, and space food. Everyone says to me, "Are we? Why aren't we eating space food yet?" And I'm thinking, "What do you think you're eating? <laughs> what do you think you're eating? Why? Why am I eating space food?" Well, because a lot of the techniques that we use now in terms of the breeding methodology that's that's gone through, a lot of the animals that are used as food animals, this don't exist in nature now. They've been so hyper-domesticated. Um, and we look at some of the issues around even lettuce vuitton, you know, the idea that we would actually be growing fruits and veggies in urban farms is, is no longer sort of a, a VC, you know, venture capital Silicon Valley type conversation. We seriously need to look at how we ensure food security for all Australians looking at new and emerging technologies around food. And some of those technologies is really interesting. They've been developed for space, like a big biopod food production for the moon. Um, well, we're using that same kind of technology on planet Earth. And this is where everyone goes, oh, you know, but why do we care about the space industry when we need to worry about planet Earth? And I'm thinking, we only have Earth observation because of the space industry. There's so much environmental science that we have an understanding now because of the space industry. And there's so much acceleration of technology because of the space industry that actually they're not separable. You, you have one, you have the other. Mm. Um, so in terms of how, you know where we were and where people were thinking and how people were writing in the 50s and 60s, they had to grasp or an idea of where things might go. But you're right, they were stuck within the technological limits of their time. Wouldn't it have been frustrating? Um, the idea that you're still stuck with transistors and silicon chips and they probably never even really thought about quantum computing. I mean, that's mm. going to be the thing that changes our generation, Josh. It's actually quantum computers um, and artificial intelligence working together because at the moment we don't have a lot of uh, cybersecurity crypto protocols protecting the internet that can actually stand up to high-level quantum computing. So if we just pop that in the terms of reference frame and think, could we go back to a, an, a world without internet? Are we looking at a post-internet future? Okay. And unless we get unless let's, we get quantum right and cybersecurity right, we're very much looking at a post-internet future. Let's explain what the hell you're talking about. What's quantum computing? So quantum computing is where we use um, methods of quantum physics to hold super, super, super fast calculations, normally done at very, very cold temperatures. But what it means that they're, they're able to do is calculations on a computer that would normally take, say, 20 or 30 years, they're able to do in a matter of minutes. 
and that will change things. Why? Simply because the computing power will become so much faster that our computers will, you'll, you'll have the, the computing power of a laptop in, what, the head of a pen? Well, if you think about it now, it's quite frustrating to me that most people that have a smart device don't recognise, because everyone quotes, oh, you know, we've got more computing power in your smartphone than they had to land on the moon. I'm like, yeah, that's great. That was great from 10 years ago. But now when you look at your smart device and you might have one more than one smart device in your home, each of those smart devices has enough computing power on it right now to run a hospital department. And so if you then go, okay, well, that's just a traditional solid metal glass silicon type processing of this smart device. Imagine now that that was a thousand times faster. Would you just be scrolling Instagram quicker or loading up TikTok videos faster? Like, What could we actually do if we had computing power? So this is where I'm really excited by some of the good work that's coming out of Silicon Valley. Well, what, so rec- well let me pause you there. I mean, what would yeah. we do? Because I can imagine well, yes. someone 15 years ago saying... If you could have the uh, the computing power of a of you know a, a, an early Mac that, that Steve Jobs unveiled what in the eighties or something or you know let's take ourselves back then and someone saying if you could have that computing power in something that you could fit in your pocket what would we do with it I mean would we just be you know mindlessly chatting to each other and sending each other notes no we'd be doing fantastic things well fast forward to now and we are mindlessly effectively sending each other notes addictive little algorithmically designed notes but little messages to each other on twitter and tiktok so would it be all that different or would we just find new ways of scratching the itches the human itches that evolution has instilled in us okay so there's two things that can be done one is um offense offense and the other one is defense right so if you think about it as a sports game when you've got super super fast computing power it means you can hack things you can undo things you can attack things in ways, and I'm not suggesting anyone does because you're in breach of lots of different kinds of legislation. Bad actors, if they get their hands on super fast computing, right. can do a lot of damage incredibly quickly. Anyone who's ever had their social media accounts held to ransom, um, universities that keep getting cyber attacks, um, banks that are constantly attacked, you want to cause the next global financial crisis, you take out a big bank. Um, and hold that for ransom. You want to um, you want to invade a neighboring country and successfully take over in a couple of days. You have a cyber attack that takes over their entire financial government and water and electricity systems. You go for their critical infrastructure without even le- unleashing a single paratrooper or a single bomb. You take control of it. Cyber warfare, as in one of my chapters in my book, we talk about the, the war with no dead. This idea that, um, I say we, the royal we, I talk about the war with no dead, <laughs> which is we can use cyber attacks to silence people, right? And that, and I'm not suggesting anyone should, it's pretty nasty. So now imagine that you've got, you know, the computing power that can hack. Josh, it's really scary. This can actually undo the internet. They're trying to find that there are codes that can actually keep up with the cybersecurity attacks that we're having. And we have solid cyber attacks in Australia every few seconds. Cybersecurity underpins everything we know as normal day-to-day life. And with quantum computing, we are going to be living in a hyper-real internet. It will move to Web3, which is a whole other conversation. It will move deeper into the immersive web metaverse, which is another conversation. And it will hopefully remove some of the carbon footprint burden that currently takes part in terms of server space and the way in which we store data. 
All which right, means let's let's we'll, let's we'll pause be able to security. store more things. I don't think cheaper. we can understand the cybersecurity and cyber warfare component until we understand more about like Web three and what we'll all be doing on this thing. Because my instinct, and you know, we, we don't have to go down a rabbit hole on this, but my layperson's instinct is. Well, of course that's not going to happen because no government would be stupid enough to embrace putting all of their systems onto quantum computers until they were at least as invulnerable as they are now, which may not be very invulnerable, but has done us fine so far. So presumably that'll be a problem that will fix itself before it's launched. No, no, quantum computers are what we want. We're in a race. This is a cold war. Are you saying that quantum computers will provide us with the security that we currently don't have? Correct. Oh, I thought you were saying the reverse, that quantum computers well, no, will be both. so, it's so new, superpowered that, a, that, a, that individual actors, non-state actors, will be able to leverage that computing power to unleash uh, mayhem. I'll tell you now, Josh, we are, we are at war. We are in a cold, cold, cold war for quantum computing. There is a race. This is putting the space race into like the space race is just so last century, right? This this is now the thing. Whoever cracks the quantum computing aspects, they will control the entire global internet. Can you imagine someone being able to do that? Well, Can, presumably it, it that's scares gonna, I mean, me witless. Isn't that, that we, isn't that surely going to be Either Apple or Google or Amazon or some other private company. No, you that need will... to think outside of the Western world that we live in. You need to think outside of Silicon Valley. There are other countries that have perfectly good capability around this that don't have anything in Silicon Valley. Right, but why aren't they producing iPhones that everyone uses? Well, they do. They produce them in their own countries. You know, Twitter's banned in India. You can't <laughs> use Twitter in India. Facebook's blocked in China. They've yeah, got their own not, versions. That's not, that's Russia's the got their as, own internet. That's not the same as creating a new engineering breakthrough to simply ban a platform. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm thinking I'm thinking quite – Elon Musk's probably hoping someone does because then he's got an excuse to get out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, but in quite all possibly. seriousness, if we don't get – and this is where we've got some wonderful – the good news is for all Australians listening, and in fact, you know, all, all, all people who are allied with Australia geopolitically is that we're actually really good at quantum computing. <laughs> so we've got um, the centre there in, in Sydney with the former Australian of the Year there, Michelle Simmons, uh, Professor Michelle Simmons running the Quantum Academy there and all the work out of Sydney. Um, so the key here, Josh, is quantum computing is the next set of um, this next set of levers around how we need to increase the security around how we currently live our lives. And unless we own the quantum computing and we control the quantum computing, we are in real trouble. And when I say we, I mean our, our security partnerships, the people that are aligned with us geopolitically. Um, you could call that Five Eyes, Quad, Orcus, whatever you want to call it. Um, so there's some of the things that bother me. But mm. why would you want super fast computing? Well, you know, I say defense and offense, right? So there's one thing, there's a defense aspect. And if we just put that to one side and you can watch all your 1980s war movies, you know, about computers trying to plan nuclear war and stuff like that and put that to one side. Good good movie there with Matthew Broderick in it. Um, <laughs> but, um, and then if you look at, okay, well, let's have a look at some of the good things that you can do with quantum. And so, for example, um, looking at AlphaFold, which was something that came out of Silicon Valley, where they literally used artificial intelligence and designed every single protein that could ever potentially exist. That was going to take us 100 years to do, and they did it in days mm. because they had super fast computing and they had artificial intelligence working through it. Now, why do we care about proteins? Ever taken antibiotics? 
Yes. We have the next pandemic. My prediction is the next pandemic is going to be antibiotic resistance. And our weaponry in that war is not very good. Mm. And so any new proteins that we can discover give us more, more bullets in the gun, right? Against this war on antibiotic resistance. And um, if I'm going to throw some real geek at you this morning, I'm just going to say the words uh, molecular de-extinction. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take the bait. Uh, Catherine, what, what, tell me, what is molecular de-extinction? So they used artificial intelligence and some remnants of Neanderthal DNA to work out what kind of proteins were being produced by Neanderthal humans. And they managed to find four or five that grew in the lab and three of them were new antibiotics. Oh, so we used artificial intelligence and historical DNA from a former um, fellow human species to find potentially new weapons in the fight against microbial resistance to antibiotics. Well, How cool is that? Come that on, is, that is cool. Uh, let me. I want to. I want to stay on computing for a moment because the way that you were talking about quantum computing being an arms race and almost existential threat arms race. Yes. Reminds me of the way that a lot of uh, my colleagues in Silicon Valley think about artificial intelligence, that once you can create systems, like forget about, you know, conscious systems and, you know, are we creating new life and are there going to be systems that, uh, you know, start to that turn on us and want to exterminate us all or, you know, terminate robot things. <laughs> um, simply creating a system that is sufficiently smart in ge in general ways, in generalizable ways, that it can produce more s examples of sophisticated code that can do more and more things so that you, you have a runaway kind of artificial intelligence effect where you've got computers creating computers to do lots of tasks that are currently done by people or that currently require tons and tons of computing power and that won't, thanks perhaps to quantum computing, that strikes a lot of people as what is going to slingshot civilization into a new era of either prosperity or destabilization and that whoever finds that jewel is going to basically dominate the rest of humankind's existence and that that is the, that is the arms race that we're not paying attention to do you buy that Generalized artificial intelligence is something that Stephen Hawking said would be the end of the human race. <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily, I think that was a media grab. I don't know that I necessarily agree because it is such a complex thing. The thing that I think it definitely does is cause more division in society. So we have the haves and the have nots and the gap between the haves and the have nots in terms of the digital world is really big and it is just getting bigger. So how do we make sure that everybody has access to these kinds of technologies, that their health systems have access to these technologies? Um, and if they're commodified and owned, how is that different to being out there for social good? Can, can computers do the things that the horror movies and the sci-fi films that we've predicted do? Probably, yes, they will be able to. Um, but even some of the best, you know, cyberpunk and science fiction writers like Neil Stevenson and William Gibson, you know, they were they were hypothesizing on this in the 90s and the 80s around how some of these things might be. So whenever I get scared about this, I always turn to someone like um, Professor Genevieve Bell, who's um, 20 years in Silicon Valley as, a, as an anthropologist watching how humans interact with the Internet. 
And she always gives me some some great points around, well, what do we consume on the internet? What do we use artificial intelligence for? Um, and the thing is, I think, Josh, is a lot of us don't realize just how much AI is already in our lives working away without us even consciously knowing about it. And that for me, when a technology becomes invisible, that's when it knows it's working. And mm. so um, for me, the AI race to this sort of global domination of machines, building machines, talking to machines, making humans into battery packs um, is not probably going to happen. Um, because social license is key to how we operate and use some of these systems. And so I have another term for you this morning. Mm. <laughs> so if we take the black box of algorithms that are used inside artificial intelligence to make these calculations, when like you go for a mortgage application or a car loan or you look for a cheap flight on the internet, that all goes through an algorithm, a black box, where computer says yes or computer says no. Well, in the States, there's already been legal cases where people have sued their insurance companies for not telling them the kinds of artificial intelligence and algorithms that have been used to make those decisions about their lives. So there's this whole push now for something called explainable AI. Mm. So how you turn that black box into a glass box and how you then show people how those conversations um, are managed and how the data is being used. Um, and so explainable AI will counteract some of this cloak and dagger secrecy that we have around artificial intelligence. But isn't it funny that it has to be led by case law coming out of places like the United States that I we mean, suddenly have to start looking at this? Catherine, is it possible to actually have a glass box? Uh, or, I mean, my hunch is that, that artificial intelligence is becoming... Let's just talk in a limited sense. Let's not even use that term because I think a lot of people think that artificial intelligence implies some kind of general, general intelligence uh, of a kind that we haven't yet devised. But let's talk mm -hmm. about these, I guess, algorithmic systems that are, you know, making all of the calculations that decide whether or not we're going to get insurance or, you know, be allowed, be considered a, a high risk person for getting a visa to go to a particular country or whatever it might be. Um, these systems, I, my hunch is that they're so complicated. And for example, the systems that decide what you're going to be shown in your social media feed next, like on TikTok, mm -hmm. are so complicated that to, to allow you to see the explainable AI, what would actually have to happen is the people who designed them would have to create a, uh, a mask that looks transparent, but is actually just a simplified uh, abbreviation or summary of roughly what the system is doing so that it's comprehensible to you, but that if it was actually transparent, you, it would be so complex that you would be completely baffled and you wouldn't be able to understand it anyway, because even the people who design it don't even really understand. I mean, even Mark Zuckerberg doesn't fully understand why Facebook is presenting me with this particular post and not another particular post. It's The system is just learning from my habits in a way that no human or collection of humans can fathom. So aren't we getting beyond the point at which the glass box is possible? Absolutely not, Josh. And what you've just described is software engineering. So there are actually people who have full qualifications that can actually tear apart code forensically and find out what's happening. I'm going to give you a solid example for this. Do you remember the COVID safe app that we all got forced to download <laughs> pretty much, held for ransom to download on our phones? Yes, to non-Australians, early in the days of the pandemic, the government came up with an ill-fated uh, app that it quietly shelved, uh, which was going to sort of notify contact tracers every time you bumped into anybody else with a phone that had the app on it. And so that way we would all be able to go back and trace who we'd been in contact with for more than 15 minutes or so. And then it seemed that it didn't really work anyway. And it was much more reliable for contact tracers just to call people and ask them where they'd been. So we have this thing called open source software. 
So open source software means that you literally open your code up. And so the coding community can work on it and, and interrogate it and, and fix it when things are broken. And so, I mean, even in my PhD, I used a statistical program called R, which is an open source piece of software where everyone builds and fixes it a bit like Wikipedia. Everyone can contribute and fix it. And so this idea of a glass box is actually having an open source access to the algorithms. So there are people that can translate these things. There are people that even use, I mean, look at ChatGPT, right? You can actually take that code, put it into ChatGPT and say, what does this code do? And ChatGPT will tell you in common English what the code is actually doing. So there'll be AI being used to decipher AI. But back to the COVID Safe app, when that was opened up to the coding community, one of the first things that I remember seeing, and this didn't get a lot of headlines, but I definitely saw it. One of the first things that was there was that they'd forgotten to put one of the states in. <laughs> Can you guess Oopsie. which state was forgotten? Mm, Tasmania. Tasmania. Yeah, poor old so Tesla. anybody in Tasmania couldn't get COVID because there was no COVID safe app. So they were fine. They were fine. I mean, they're an they island. They're an island. They're, they're an island. Themselves. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so it's just like, and it's because it was designed by people that weren't Australians. Right. Okay, but so I this is I'm the... still skeptical that, that you think, I'm, I'm, it feels naive to me to think that software engineers understand everything that they have, have created. I, I know software engineers who work at some of these big tech firms and they, they will tell me that like there are whole chunks of code that are basically legacy code from some other system. Like, you know, we're talking about, for example, a aviation reservation systems that are, that are mm -hmm. extraordinarily complicated and that need to be linked into a whole bunch of other reservation systems of other airlines and in, in alliances and so on. And they'll say, well, there's this whole chunk of code. Nobody knows what it does. It's inherited from some, from some other purpose, you know, from years ago. We, all we know is that when you delete it, something completely unrelated, an error starts happening and people can't use this thing over here that has absolutely no connection to this piece of code. And there's no one can explain why this happens, but we just leave it there and we don't touch it because <laughs> we know that if we take it out, then problems happen in this completely unrelated sphere. That's the And so then you just leave it there. And that's the, so the idea that opening up a the turning the black box into a glass box is going to be as simple as allowing people to look at that. I mean, even if the, if the software engineers themselves don't know what the code does, then how, how will I? Well, this is it. I think there are software engineers that could probably work out what that code is doing. And I think someone's half pulling your leg there, Josh, because I have never in my life ever come across <laughs> people that don't know exactly what all parts of the code do and how they build that code with the different blocks of code and how I was even using code in my PhD. Writing code is just writing a language, right? It's like learning French or German. It's just like learning another language. And I always had this thing when I was on Q&A, however many years ago, and I always say coding shouldn't be taught in a science classroom. Coding should be taught in a language language classroom because it is literally just a language but the thing is it is complex but there are some people who like me get away with speaking French and there are some people that understand the you know the etymology and where the origin of that particular word comes from and the historical reference doesn't mean that I'm any worse at communicating in French it's just that I don't understand it on all those different levels no but there are aspects um, of French that people don't know we don't know why why you know French particular French verbs are conjugated in a particular way Nobody well, exactly can explain right that. we just inherit them because yeah. we didn't have it all written down I mean but... li I'm literally looking at a box on the studio desk right, <laughs> right right now which is uh which is a system that this studio uses to communicate with other studios and it was built by someone decades ago and I'm told reliably by the engineers here that when that system breaks, they're just going to have to junk it and import a new system because that because nobody knows exactly how nobody can quite figure out exactly how it works. 
So because the person who built it has died. Uh, yes, that's a so historical thing, right? It. So this is, yeah, that, I understand that's a hardware issue. So there's a hardware and software are slightly different. Um, but I agree. And in fact, the thing, the, the thing is, we are getting to the point now where we're scaling these technologies in ways that when that particular piece of hardware on your desk was created, the scale did not exist. The right. world as it is right now did not exist. No. So I'm absolutely, I know that there are forensic accountants who are different to my regular accountant. There are forensic software engineers that are different to regular en software engineers. People can decipher and open. And when they opened up the COVID safe, app, COVID safe app code, they absolutely, the, the community went on it like a vampire fire on a virgin it was a bloodbath it was amazing to see all these people going what's this code here for what are they doing with that bit and, mm. and i was just like i'm sorry we do have a really active coding community and people that work in this that can do it now the problem though is and you've you've inadvertently knocked the nail on the head for me in that not everyone does not everyone does understand code uh, because we're not all taught it and those of us that are in our 40s you know the, the computers that we first got exposed to with literally floppy disks mm. Um, you know, in the Commodore 64s, those are not the kind of machines that we are living and working and playing with now. And so um, a, a fellow futurist, a lovely woman called Sinead Baval, who's based over in New York, had this piece on her Instagram this week. And she talked about how if we train somebody right now in technology in five years time, 90% of that information is already obsolete. Yeah, right. And so if you think about how many years it's been since you and I were at school learning about basics of IT, I learned about Excel spreadsheets at high school. Mm. I avoid Excel spreadsheets like the plague now. <laughs> I'm not sure they're even needed anymore, are they? I mean, who's <laughs> using an Excel spreadsheet? I suppose they use it occasionally for a household budget. But I mean, we're not using it for anything sophisticated, I assume, anymore. So is your takeaway, what's your, what's just to wrap up the section about, about artificial intelligence computing uh, and quantum computing, what's your, you know, fast forward, I guess, as, as far into the future as we are from Steve Jobs unveiling the first personal computer and what does this all look like? It's inside our bodies. We're moving from the internet of things to the internet of bodies. In 10 years time, we will not have mobile phones the way we have them right now. They're going to be wearables, implantables. We'll have new phases of Google glasses and Google contact lenses or whichever provider facebook or apple apple are coming out with their new vr headset and we'll be diving into immersive realities just looking like normal people not wearing great big headsets because there'll be actually contact lenses that we're wearing um, or things that are actually just little earbuds and things like that so technology is going to get a lot smaller and a lot more inside us so we are going to become cyborgs um i'd wow. suggest in the next 40 years and will we um, interact with that with that technology presumably through voice activation i mean will will me will me punching at my iPhone with my finger seem as antiquated to, to, to future me as the people in 2001 with their big computers and gigantic buttons pushing brightly lit buttons seem? Yeah. So it's been less than 20 years since Steve Jobs introduced the, the scroll, you know, to move the screen with your thumb. Yeah. That was revolutionary. Mm. And that was less than 20 years ago, right? So the idea now is that you won't even be using if you wanted to go really far into like 40 or 50 years time, you'll just be thinking about it and it will do it. You reckon? Absolutely. I won't need to We've say already it. got brain computer interfaces that can do this in a rudimentary fashion for people who have locked in syndrome mm. and who are paralyzed. They can just think about it and they can move robot arms. 
That's amazing, isn't it? I have done, I did, I was doing a story about this for an American TV show that I was working on and the, the, this was a good 10 years ago now. And the, the, they basically had a rudimentary video game that you could play just with your mind, but it was simply Mm -hmm. your intensity of thought that was pushing the dial and it Mm -hmm. worked. I mean, I could definitely think, I could think that the thing should move and it would move. So, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what the step is from taking, from going, all right, this brain has increased electrical activity in it, therefore I'm going to move this thing, to he's thinking of an apple. Well, this is where now we're going to be using lots of MRIs and you will probably get involved in some kind of trials where you will be personalising your equipment according to your own brain activity, um, where you'll be trained on how to do those things. It's going to be so interesting, Josh. I'm just, I'm sad I'm not going to be around to see it. <laughs> well, we'll see some of it, hopefully. Uh, Maybe, you know, some the beginnings of it. Yeah, the beginnings of it. Um, okay, great. W- look, there's so many things that we could talk uh, about now. I almost want to get you, want want you to, to navigate this, to direct this conversation because we could talk about drones, we could talk about longevity, we could talk about uh, vaccines and cancer, we could talk about... Um, I mean, war and conflict. We could talk about food production, food shortages. We could talk about manufacturing. We could talk about, let's not talk about climate yet, but take, what do you see as the sort of, as the things that if you, that if everybody could know about them, the world would be a better place. What are those? Oh, crumbs. I just, I really believe that if everyone was just a bit more intentional, about how we made choices and how we interacted with each other and more intentional with how we used the computing power that we had. There's so many things that we could do, but you're going to make me start sounding like an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) You are. Don't you think of yourself as one? (laughs) I have referred to myself as a hopeful optimist. I have two children under five. Like, do I, I don't really have a right to be anything else other than an optimist, right? Like I have to hope there's something out there for them. Um, Here's something. I find the idea of the future of food. So let's take that question that you've just asked me in terms of what's the technology going to be like in 50 years? And let's think, what's the food we're eating going to look like in 50 years? Mm. Because there are some real advances in food that I'm really excited by. Which might sound really weird, but I love no, food. No, I'm I'm and- <laughs> excited by them as well. I mean, I will I will go out on a limb and hazard a guess that in 50 years it will not be considered, uh, and this is a cultural uh, um, prognostication as much as a technological one, it will be considered barbaric to be eating the flesh of animals who were able to suffer and who were raised in ways that had no regard for their suffering. And And that the kind of technological revolution that's taking place in terms of what they're calling clean meat or lab grown meat, where you can grow animal actual animal flesh not fake you know not vegetables that are compiled to to seem like a burger but actual animal flesh without a a brain that that's going to become the norm i agree a thousand percent because it's already happening i think that's actually going to be in the next 15 years 20 years mm there's some people that have, uh, like Jim Mellon, this chap's done some extrapolations for Australia, and it's not just meat, though. So it's meat, it's milk, it's leather, and it's silk. So anything that kind of comes from an, an animal as an animal product mm. that can then be turned into something that microbes make in a vat. Um 
Palm oil was one that I was reading about yesterday. So there's a company in the States that's actually managed to start creating palm oil. So all of that deforestation in Indonesia and all the destruction of the orangutans habitats, we don't need it anymore because we can make palm oil in the lab. So it's like, it's not just even about sentient animals and how we slaughter animals. It's also about the environmental impact of our current methods of agriculture. But Jim Jim Mellon went so far as to say that, you know, in Australia, we will have no large dairy herds and we will have no large beef cattle herds in the next decade. Well, that's not true. That can't be true. Well, it's interesting because you've got to look at the invisible hands of economics, Josh. But I just mean, technologically speaking, I mean, everyone I talk to in clean meat says... We're getting pretty good at chicken nuggets and and ground beef, mince mm-hmm. meat. It's mm-hmm. going to be a while before we can, it's going to be a long time, before we can artificially recreate the mouthfeel and the structure and the sinew of a steak. Steak is the apex of all the meats, right? So the majority of human beings on this planet, even those that eat meat, will never eat a filet mignon in Paris. No, but, okay. uh, but Aussies regard that as being a backbone of our diet, and that's what all of those beef cattle are doing. Yeah, the no, no. Most of our beef cattle are exported. Yeah, I know, but it, <laughs> right, but, but so no, that's what I'm saying. So these large the, beef cattle the, herds, they're not actually eaten by Australians. We're only 25 million people. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand that it's an export market, but what I'm saying is, are you saying that we'll still be raising cattle for our own consumption? I think there will be a dichotomy in the industries where we'll have these, you know, the Aberdeen Angus grown on grass fed in, you know, Central West Queensland will become sort of the steak that you have as an Australian. Right, and, and we'll have like that, you know, really high quality. Australia is known as the deli counter of, of South, uh, Southeast Asia and Asia and APAC. Mm. We are not the bread basket. We are the deli counter. Yeah. So I think we'll push as, as this thing scales, we will push into that luxury market for those that still want those grass fed Australian beef cattle steaks. Yes. And it's going to be a long time before those are, can be replicated in the lab. Well, you say that they're going for it. So let's see. <laughs> hey, one day when they still have them, right, because I don't really eat meat. So one day when they have them, let's you and I go for a steak in Sydney when yes. they have these lab-grown steaks and I will blind test, I will it's blind taste test I honestly you. think that we'll both be dead by the time that is, <laughs> by the time <laughs> no, we get there. No, to be true, you know, the thing that's actually holding it back is actually the regulators, Josh. So we've got in Singapore already, they're serving that chicken at 1880, that posh restaurant in Singapore. Right. The Israelis have um, a chicken restaurant already that's up and running with their chicken manufactured meat as they call it they're trying to get away from the phrase lab grown to manufactured right. manufactured um manufactured milk can you imagine if you don't need dairy cattle you just have manufactured milk well yeah and i mean not- surely surely in 50 years we're gonna you know at my children's our children's children are gonna say you mean they used to get milk by literally yeah. just having a cow and they yeah. would just like squeeze the cow's udders and squirt the mm-hmm. milk out that's so gross yeah it is, isn't it? It's 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 a weird construct, but that's already kind of that's already kind of happening because the push for veganism, especially in the face of climate change, the push for alternative ways of getting protein, and also we've got another two billion mouths to feed before you and I pop off the mortal coil. Yeah. It's like how are we gonna do that when we can't keep fishing the way we're fishing? We can't keep aquaculture, we can't keep farming the way we've we just have to find new ways. So even if it doesn't kill off the traditional methodology, even if it actually just allows us to have alternatives to that traditional methodology, if I was Paul McCartney, I would be throwing so much money at this. Like, you know, they put so much money into the Linda McCartney brand of this idea of vegetarian sausage rolls, which I'd say are really nice. I do love my Linda McCartney sausage rolls. But um, the idea that, you know, you could actually have people who are these big multi-billion, you know, really rich people that are like, 
you know, vegans and vegetarians throw their money at manufactured meat and milk and that would be doing everything they want to achieve politically. It's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. But it's the regulators. So the FDA in the US are just starting to approve it. The Europeans are getting a bit itchy and getting ready to approve it. Um, and you'll find that this thing, like with all things, there's a cascade effect. As soon as someone like the FDA approves it, then there's pretty much pressure on all of the other regulators, including Australia, to go, well, hang on a second. If the FDA's approved it, why are we not? Well, but I mean, also, you were talking at the beginning of the conversation about the misinformation from big oil companies about climate change over the past few decades. Just wait until you get a load of the misinformation campaigns run by big agricultural companies against clean meat about franken foods and how we don't know what the long-term consequences of eating this stuff are and so on and so forth it's interesting because if i was these big if i was a milk producer or a meat producer right now i'd be investing in this because i would then split my brand yeah i would course. then i would then say here's our we care about the future and we want to investigate these technologies and maintain uh, the quality of our industry by by looking at these technologies and actually looking at how this is good for our industry and good for Australia and, and good for everything that we produce. And we also have our, our traditional methods and our farms that we, we support in all of these other ways. I would be I would be diversifying my portfolio. I wouldn't be fighting against it. Mm, yeah. What does that mean for countries like Australia where our backbone is, you know, one of our major export industries, as you said, is, uh, is agriculture, is meat. Uh, if we're only then providing boutique steaks to people in fancy restaurants in Asia, that's not going to provide the same amount of revenue as we currently get from, from beef. Well, that's correct. But you've also got to look at who owns the beef farms and who's making the money off the beef farms. Who is making the, the money off the beef farms? Well, doesn't, doesn't our Gina own quite a few in partnership <laughs> with foreign nationals? She's a, she's our richest mining magnate in Australia. Uh, yeah. Um, Sure. She she's bought up a lot of cattle cattle land. Yes. Um, yeah, but I, I mean I just think this, you, whatever this, you think of her, that's is, an Australian company employing Australian people to do Australian They're not work. though, you see, and this is the mythology of it, I think. Um, in that it's not it's not gonna well, affect what part of that is wrong. I think that if you were sitting in an agricultural economy right now, there are so many ways in which you could diversify your income streams to drought proof yourself and flood proof yourself and do lots of different ways in which there's going to be money, for example, around carbon farming. Australians are already carbon farming. We're paying our farmers to sequester carbon already. Mm. Uh, rewilding, looking at getting people out into nature, um, working with um, Indigenous Australians to rewild and protect the areas that we have. Um, and I think that large-scale beef cattle farms, they may be a thing of the past in 10 years' time. Um, but we... The thing is, Josh, when I you mean, said to me, what's the one worthy, thing I could but, give? But that doesn't pay the rent. I mean, no, but the thing is, oh, it does if you diversify your income streams. This is a red flag. This is not saying these are definitely going to happen. But the idea is look to see what the opportunities are in some of these future technologies and look to see what some of the red flags are of some of these future technologies. And don't just walk blindly with your fingers in your ears singing along, ignoring them. Look at them and say, okay, we want to be a farm of the future. We want to get involved in permaculture. We want to get involved in horticulture. We want to look at diversifying our, our income streams. Mm. Um, and the thing is, if you look at every single country in the world that's had some kind of major agricultural history to it, that history has always changed. And this is where people don't like it and they're scared of the future and they'll be like, stop having a go at everybody. And I'm like, I'm not having a go. And this is the point. This is why I even wrote the book I wrote because if people are aware of the opportunities that these new technologies can bring, 
then then work on those opportunities. Don't yeah. try and fight them because the invisible hands of economics will disrupt you because we work in a global society now and you will be competing against people that you'll never meet. Um, and so you have to get yourself ready to prepare for global disruption. I mean, you know, we banned live animal export in the UK 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Still have an agricultural economy. Yeah. Well. Partly. We do. Not the same like, as, they, as For Australia. the size of the country. I mean, come on, it's not even the size of freaking <laughs> Victoria. Half of Queensland. It's, the, yeah, it's not even the size of Victoria, of Victoria is it? It's tiny. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah no, but I but, mean, you know, it's fi still financial export. services are a much bigger export in the UK than they are here. I've got friends that are beef cattle farmers in, in Devon with beautiful Aberdeen Angus cattle on their farm there. And, you know, they're, it's be they're beautiful beautiful cows they've yeah. got wonderful wonderful life and you know they they are doing very well and um no i mean i understand your point that it's about managing the transition rather than opposing the transition i'm just making the point that that transition does have to be managed and we can't just yes. say oh well it's going to be great when there's no more you know when people are no longer eating cheap beef across asia uh, that'll be great for the cows and it might be great for people's health and it might be great for the future technologies and the companies that own the IP on how to create lab grown meat, but there will be losers and those, you know, those losers have to wake up now and realize, realize mm -hmm. what's coming. Uh, because if you said to the current, to, far, to current farmers in Australia, that in 10 years time, farming is going to be the same proportion of Australia's exports as it is of the UK's exports. They would, mm -hmm. they would regard that as being an Armageddon situation, uh, which has to be managed. Um, it's something that people need to take seriously. I mean, if I said, to, if I said um, a company name to you that you will hopefully recognize, though I bet you anyone who was born um, like, you know, in the late 90s and afterwards might not even know this, Kodak. Yes, of course. You know the name Kodak? Yep. So what did Kodak do? They produced cameras and film. And that was their problem because they didn't produce cameras and film. Their business was in the business of memories. Mm. And so when one of their employees developed the very, very first digital camera in 1977, two years before I was born, and he was laughed out of the boardroom because they said, no one's going to care about digital imagery. That won't increase our paper sales. Where's Kodak now? Yeah. I mean, do they even exist or are they all digital? They do still exist. And if you go to specialist photography shops, they still have their film and their paper and you can still get their disposable cameras and their kids' cameras. Mm. But you see, if you look at your smart device, Kodak were the best at this. They were the first to develop a digital camera. And on every single smart device we have, it should have a Kodak camera on it, but we don't. Why? Mm. Mm. Because they refuse to see the changes coming. Mm. They refused to, they, but they also forgot what it was that they did as their business. Their revenue was generated by paper sales. Their revenue was generated by camera film, but their business was their business of their community. Their, their people that bought their products was memories. Yeah. It was all about memories. So if you translate this now to things like the metaverse, the metaverse is about communities. It's not about technology. And so every single industry is up and ripe for disruption and up and ripe for disruption at a scale and a speed that we've never experienced before. Mm. And, you know, this isn't to put the, the heebie-jeebies into people, but it's to go, wait, can we just wake up, please? Yeah. Like, if we, if we don't lead this, we will only ever be a fast follower or a slightly slower follower. And that is not going to um, an economy build. 
Let's talk about, and by the way, uh, uh, just looking at um, agriculture, because now that, that piqued my interest about UK agriculture, it's, uh, it's about a half a percent of UK GDP is agriculture, and it's about 3% of Australia's GDP, so about six times um, as important to Australia as it is to the to the UK. Still, That's still smaller than I would have expected, 3% What's of GDP. What's the dollar figures, GDP? though? GDP is a bit of a misnomer for me. It's Because um... they're three times our population. No, as a, as a proportion of GDP. Yeah, yeah. So they're three times our population. So that's gross domestic product by the population, right? So, what's the actual dollar value or the sterling value? No, of I think it's the adjust- industry? I think it's. I think it's a. I don't think it's per. Like it's. It's adjusted for that because the as as a fraction of GDP is going to be the same regardless of the population, right? Yes, I think I need to just do a bit of homework. I think so. Give you some notes for the for the program. No, I think so. I think so. So I think um, in twenty twenty one, agriculture's contribution to the UK economy was eleven point two million pounds, or zero point five one percent of GDP. Uh, So eleven point two million quid. Eleven point two million pounds in AUD. uh, But it's but the twenty million Australian. That's right, and then. GDP distribution across economic se- sectors in Australia uh, is export it doesn't have an absolute, but it, but the absolute export. value shouldn't matter. That's that's why you do GDP and a proportion of GDP because well, yes and no because our GDP outweigh, our population to GDP, Josh, it just throws the statistics because you're using smoothing lies, damn lies, and statistics. Okay, so Australia's total agricultural exports, including crops and livestock, were valued at an ex- estimated sixty six. 0.6 billion Australian dollars in 2022. So you can take your 20 million and compare it to 66.6 billion, and that sounds a lot different to 0.5 to 3% GDP, doesn't it? Uh, well, yes, but it works in my favour as, as proving that Australia is more reliant on <laughs> no, agriculture. No, I said it's huge for Australia. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, I mean, either, either way. I, I, no, but, but you see, can you imagine now if we're the world leaders in manufactured milk, we're the world leaders in manufactured chicken, and we're the world leaders in manufactured fish, mm. fish is massively important for the Pacific. So imagine that we could actually grow our exports through manufacturing these products huge opportunity we've already got the supply chains we've already got the contracts we've already got the clients we've already got the markets one of the other things that people who are you know very obsessed with how whiz bang the future is going to be especially in silicon valley obsess about uh, apart from artificial intelligence which we've touched on the future of clean meat which we've touched on is health and aging and longevity like there are a lot of people who see and this kind of relates to artificial intelligence because you also get these well, I don't want to call them crackpots, but you know, some people regard them as crackpots like Ray Kurzweil, who feel like fairly imminently computers will be sufficiently sophisticated that we'll be able to upload our consciousnesses into silicon-based life forms and we will still have the, <laughs> the qualia, the sense of me, the actual sensation of being alive, the sense of what it's like to be me, even if I were existing inside a computer, which I think is uh, com- the jury is completely still out on in a way that many people in Silicon Valley don't seem to appreciate. But nonetheless, how do you feel about this growing trend that we should imminently be able to live to 120, 150, 200 years old, that there's nothing necessarily uh, inevitable about aging, that that aging is a disease and like all diseases, we can treat it and start swapping out things in our systems that are decaying in order to live much, much longer than we currently do. Will that happen? Okay. 
So there's a few things. So one is um, I've recently been listening to, and I hope it doesn't kick in. Here we go, because I've just had to find it on my um, Audible, Lifespan by David Sinclair. Have yes, you read that or I listened have, to that book? I have read yeah. it and I've spoken to David. He's an Aussie who's probably the world's leading proper, legit, non-crackpot expert on yeah. life extent, extension. He works at one of the big Ivy Leagues in the US, Princeton. Or He's at Harvard, isn't Harvard, he? Whatever. I think... Yeah. We're, we're, we're looking because I'm connected to the X Prize. So Peter Diamandis is talking with him about looking at an aging X Prize. Oh, cool. Or yeah. An anti-aging X Prize. Um, and so there is a lot of work that's been happening for a long time looking at this. And I think that when we look at the fact that we've got a growing population and an aging population, it's not about necessarily extending the years. But the way I really liked how David framed it was that aging is a disease. And if we could see aging as a disease, how would we treat that disease? And one of the things that's thrown me, you know, with this whole Chris Hemsworth on Discovery Channel, not Discovery, let me start that again. One of the things that's um, thrown me with this Chris Hemsworth thing on Disney Channel where he's got that Limitless program where they found that he had a genetic predisposition that was greater than the general population to have Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Um, and so they started, oh God, I'm going to get emotional. They started showing him pictures of what his wife would look like if she was old so that if he does get Alzheimer's when he's old, he will remember having seen those pictures when he's young so oh. he will know what his wife looks like. Oh my goodness. Uh, oh my God. And I, my uncle just died last week of dementia and it robbed him of his dignity. Mm. It robbed him of his thought. It robbed him of his relationships and he's suffered for the last five years. Um, and in the end he died after they called an ambulance to help and there was a 12 hour delay on the ambulance in the Oof. UK and he, he died. And um, how do you feel about the whole, I haven't seen the Chris Hemsworth thing, but you mentioned lies, damned lies and statistics. I mean, I find there's something a little bit macabre and hysterical about that stunt with Chris Hemsworth, because your odds of getting Alzheimer's, your general odds of getting Alzheimer's, you know, prior to, I say, the age of 80 are fairly low. And to have the gene increases them by some amount, but I think it's an amount of something like 17% over the baseline or something like that. So your absolute risk is still, it's still much, 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 much likelier that Chris Hemsworth won't get Alzheimer's than that he will. Uh, oh, absolutely. I agree with you, Josh. And, and it's all clickbait and it's all designed yeah. to make us watch the show. And I haven't managed to spend much time watching the show. But and I found that I found the um, that, that it was very well, macabre is such a great way to describe it. Anything around, you know, death. But we one of the things I did take away from it was that um, we do forget sometimes about the health of our brains. We're obsessed with what our bodies look like. Yeah. And, and we don't really talk about our brain health. And this mm. is where you know, people like wonderful David and, and the work of the X prize and lots of, lots of people are looking at the fact that, you know, people have been laughed out in the past of saying, you know, oh, there's a link between your gut and your brain, except now we know that most of our serotonin is made in our gut that directly affects our brain. You know, that expression, trust your gut, mm. you know, it's from old English now backed up by science. Mm. Um, and part of me is like, look, if this has given one person an idea that, an idea of I need to think about protecting my brain better, for me, it's almost like a public health message. Yes, it's obviously clickbaity. Yeah. Yes, it's obviously trying to get people to watch a TV show. But this is actually also his real life. And I don't want 
any kind of predisposition to any kind of neurodegenerative disease increased by even 1%, let alone 8 to 10%. I mean, isn't this part of the problem with the whole longevity mission? And I'm excluding David Sinclair from this because he is very rigorous about his oh, science. But there's a whole, yeah. there is a whole movement of people, of futurists who feel like, like, like Aubrey de Grey, you know, who, who um, has a, do you know Aubrey? Do you know of Aubrey? Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's a, a, a wild-haired, uh, shaggy Englishman who lives in <laughs> California and heads a, a longevity startup that I think was acquired by Google as part of their moonshot program. Um, and, you know, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on fixing the body and how, like, our, our human systems can really sort of be treated like a car in a way and you can swap bits out and you can keep prolonging them indefinitely until you get to the next phase of research at which you know more than you did earlier and you can kind of just keep ahead of the advancing uh, needle of technology so that you're always just ahead of death um and i mean my dad has alzheimer's as well he's he's not bad bad yet he's still living at home with uh, with my mum and he has a pacemaker so his body is in great shape and he was always fit and he's in good weight. He's in a good, a good weight. But you, one does note the difference in modern medicine's emphasis on keeping the body well and its understanding of how to keep the mind well. And, you know, what are we gaining by sustaining the body for as long as we possibly can if it fails to deteriorate at the same rate that the brain does. Who wants the additional 50 years at that point? Well, it's like I write about in my book. There's no point in us all living to 100 if the last 20 years of it we're basically just suffering right. in, a, in, a, in a home. Like, absolutely no way am yeah. I signing up for that. Yeah. No way. Um and and this is this is the big thing, right? They literally just discovered a brand new part of the brain that we didn't know existed. Just I read it in a paper yesterday. Brand new structure of the brain that's just been discovered. Look, I mean, Minsky, one of the first people that worked on cybernetics, and I suppose you'd call him a futurist. He's been deep frozen since he passed away a couple of decades ago. Everyone talks about freezing so they can be brought back. People talk about the singularity. It's still 50 years away. Um, would we still be human if we were uploaded to a machine? Let's just take a look at social media. Would you say that you are yourself anyway on social media? Or are you using filters or are you using clips of what it is that you are? Um, and the idea of the singularity is that, you know, you become part of this super consciousness and what could that possibly achieve? Um, you know, in terms of let's all work together to solve the world's problems. And I'm thinking, have you ever actually met another human being? <laughs> Let alone been trapped in a room with them or stuck in a lift with them uh, for more than half an hour. And have um, you ever seen and, how humans collaborate in a free-for-all? I mean, have you ever um, seen a mm -hmm. mob? Have you ever been on yes. Twitter? Like, have you ever yes. seen what actually oh, happens yes, Twitter, when people... The original metaverse. Yeah, um, exactly. When people are fr completely free to bump into each other in an unfettered way. It's not pretty. I know. I know. It's, uh, it's all a bit uh, utopian, isn't it? It's all a bit, uh, this is going to be perfect. No, it's not. Someone's going to make money off it as well. And the thing is, a lot of people don't even realize there's already a digital twin of them somewhere in a computer in a data amalgamation company, probably in Colorado or something, where they're building a digital twin of you and your life choices. And they're selling that to various companies to try and market things. Um, the fact yeah, that we're- Explain what you we mean by that. I mean, a lot of people, but I mean, this is a separate question to whether you can upload your consciousness to a computer or something 
in the future. What you're talking about is the aggregation of all the data that are essentially the exhaust fumes of what you're doing online, which are getting picked up and collected by companies that know that they can compile a bunch of information about person 372,643,922 named Catherine and mm-hmm. that they can therefore make predictions about what you might want or need or what can be sold to you. Um, where is that going? How is that actually going to affect my life? I think most of us have responded with a resigned shrug to the questions of data privacy. Well, I mean, this is it. We don't even own our own data in Australia. The only country that really got that done was Estonia. Um, the idea that, you know, you think therefore you are, or you shop, I remember it was it John Lewis or somewhere in the UK. I shop therefore I am. <laughs> was it Selfridges? Mm. I can't remember. I was just like, oh my God. But we really are the sums of our choices and, that, and our actions speak louder than our words. And people can start making, uh, you know, building jigsaw puzzles of you digitally around all of your choices and how you interact with people and all of your relationships. But the thing that a lot of people forget about digital twins is that they don't take you in isolation. They actually take you and your entire family and all your second degree connections. And so we are already being put together in one great big mass around our own personal relationships. There's that old adage, isn't it? You know, you're the, you're the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with, which basically means I'm a raging toddler at the moment. Mm. Um, but the idea that digitally we'll have those kinds of footprints, social um, capital really bothers me. The idea that we'd be judged and be given things or have rights taken away from us, depending upon how we behaved on social media. Um, Some of the things that scares me about some of the other jurisdictions in the world, like I think in Saudi at the moment, they've been putting people in prison for 34 years for tweeting or retweeting things. Um, And, you know, don't get me started. Mm. Um, But human rights and digital rights and, uh, you know, this is where Ed Santow is always good for a chat around these things. We haven't got it right, Josh. And unfortunately, these things are scaling and it's going to directly affect our children. And these are kinds of difficult conversations that we're probably not even literate enough to have with people like MP who should be putting in protections for us. And it's almost like we sit here just responding to things that are happening to us rather than actually saying, hang on a second, no, we don't want to be able to have this data shared. No, we don't want people to be able to access these things. But I don't know anybody who reads the T's and C's when they download the app they want to download to upload videos of dancing or face changing. Or We've, we've, we've slept walked into a surveillance capitalist society and we're quite happy to sell our identity to people for some reason. We wouldn't do it if someone walked up to us in the street with a clipboard and a pen and asked us questions, but we'll give it to the likes of the tech billionaires for free. Yeah. Or the Chinese Communist Party, as the yeah. case may be. Yeah, exactly. What's it's, the and, way out of that, though? layers because there, man. There's I mean, layers and layers and layers. But if I want to, I mean, if I want to live in the modern world, then I sort of have to have, well, I don't have to, but I, I choose to, ha- I choose to, to engage with, my, with culture, with contemporary culture in a way that requires that I have apps and I don't get to tweak the terms and conditions on those apps. It's a, it's a take it or leave it proposition. So I have to, what, essentially be a Luddite in order to not hand over my data. Well, for yourself, for example, you could have a whole separate phone and separate thing for your work identity. And then that's all the things that you need to do. And then for your personal life, you could have nothing if you didn't want it. People are, people are buying the dumb phones, the, the old Nokia phones of the 90s that we could probably all get out of the drawer and switch on and it would still have battery power, you know? <laughs> I'd kind of love to. Yes, I'm je- sort of I, jealous. I mean, I, I'm, I'm envious of the, the chutzpah of people who, have will, who are willing to take that leap. 
it, it takes a space. You know, there's people going off grid all the time. And you know who the most uh, the most people I see going off grid are the billionaires, Josh. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the and ones sending that their are making kids the to, money from it. Like they're sending their kids to Steiner schools with no technology, where they can yes. just climb trees and embrace the grass. Uh, yes. Now, yeah. what does that tell you? Yeah. What does that tell you? If they're the ones that have created it, drug dealer, a good drug dealer doesn't take their own drugs, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting, but it's also incredibly worrying. But this is also though when this is where I loop back as the optimist and I can't help it. The systems engineer optimist in me. So we talk about all of these ways in which identity is going to be managed, and then we look at computer brain interfaces, and we look at ways in which we're going to try and you know bionically preserve the body. And people are looking at computer brain interfaces, and you know Melbourne was the first in the world to get into the human trials of the computer brain interface, um, and I think then a lot of tech billionaires wanted to then invest in that company. We beat the Silicon Valley crew to doing that because it was. Hmm, science, publicly funded science managed to get there first. Hmm, who'd have thought it? Anyone used Wi-Fi lately? Um, and, um, you know, we've got these opportunities to look at, okay, if somebody has got um, a degenerative disease, how do we support them looking at how these things are going to be? Rather than, you know, the Internet of Bodies is going to take us into a gamified universe and metaverse and go, right, okay, how do we use these as therapeutics for people so that they know how to use their legs, that they know how to remember their wife's face, that they know how to do various things? And that that for me is quite exciting. I was very sorry to see um, um, Alan Sim unfortunately passed away. He was a, a, a godfather of the stem cell um, you know, the, the stem cell to nerve cell um, technologies. He was former Australian of the year, you know, working on people with spinal cord injuries and helping people walk again. Um, and, you know, when we look at some of the convergent technologies around some of these medical treatments, they are coming out of what might seem to be the games industry or Silicon Valley or the tech industry or the, the aging industry. And I think that um, the biggest thing we can do is, is to try and encourage that convergence and that meeting of different kinds of industries um, to try and solve a problem. And the best way to do that is funding, right? And, and funding research and allowing scientists to take these technologies and test them rigorously um, to ensure that we can actually provide some decent health outcomes. You know, the world could go very dark, but the world could also go incredibly bright. We've got um, amazing technologies that are scaling right now that some of them don't even have business use cases that we just need to find for them. What's your general sense? I mean, you mentioned you're an optimist and you said it can go dark or it can go light. Like when our children, I say our children, not because you and I have had children <laughs> together, but because we happen to have children <laughs> of roughly the same age. When our little uh, little lads and lasses are, uh, you know, are our age, um, I suppose what advice would you give them now for navigating that period of, of civilization's future? One of the things I saw this week was really interesting is Finland are actually teaching school kids how to recognize fake news. So we've now cool. got teachers in classrooms teaching um, preteen students to pick up the fakery on the internet because humans are actually quite good at sniffing out what's real and what's not. And you don't have to call yourself a cynic. Like we can tell the difference between a, a robot and a human pretty well. Um, we know that deep fakes and audio fakes are going to get more sophisticated and there are people that are creating you know for example with chat gpt there are people that are creating um algorithms to pick up if you've used a chat bot or not um and so i think the thing is to always teach people to be um inquisitive and ask questions about where that information came from where is the reference where did that where did that person get that inference and that reference and to just try and allow people to be individuals and less part of the pack i suppose 
with our kids, it's like I talk to a lot of my my friends who are primary school teachers. I worry because my children do have screen time um, and they love some of the educational apps and we watch movies together, but we also read books. They're out playing in the dirt. They love they love uh, kickerball, as we call football, kickerball and um, frisbees. We've just got into like, you know, proper long distance frisbee throwing, which I'm much better at than my five year old is. So he really runs a lot, which is great. Um, and, you know, swimming in the pool is the best thing ever. If you were to offer them the iPad or the pool, they will choose the pool over the iPad, you know. Absolutely. And so I think um, it's like with with anything, just balance and, you know, offering new opportunities and just constantly keeping them hungry and just never just sticking to the one thing to cut children off from technology um is is not necessarily going to be the way to uh, to teach them how to use something responsibly and to learn when to put it down and to learn the you know that that for me is a bigger key Catherine. our kids my gosh when they're our age when they're our age oh the world is going to be such a different place um <laughs> And I suppose, you know, what did my mum want to teach me when I was a kid growing up? You know, the world is a beautiful big place and there's, and now our kids are going to be generation Artemis. So they're going to be off planet. I mean, they're going to be at the moon. They're going to be looking at, even in their lifetime, they'll be having people go to Mars. Like they'll have robot missions to Mars in our lifetime, but human missions to Mars will happen in their lifetime. Catherine, that's the subject for an entirely different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) um, I thank you so much for uh, for enlightening us about this. It's wonderful to talk to you again um, and take care of the little ones and uh, and hopefully their lives are full of joy and amazement as well as all of the crises that they're inevitably going to have to navigate. Thank you. I think once you find something that you love in the world... um, then it helps you weather those storms when things are dark. And so that's the biggest gift I think I'll try and give them. But thank you so much for your time. I always love digging deep and pulling the layers off the onion with you, Josh, even if it makes me cry sometimes. (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks, Catherine. See you.